Well, good morning. We're in uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're still in chapter 1, of course, naturally. And uh, the verses today are Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. Uh, as, as was read for us earlier today from Galatians about the Holy Spirit. Um, just, just not, you know, to give you the end of the sermon at the beginning here, Christ's constant companion is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're going here. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you so much for this time to open your word, to learn, to be renewed. We pray, Father, that by your spirit you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would um, open our affections, Father, that you might root around inside of us and cleanse us and um, get rid of everything that is uh, preventing us from following the spirit, from hearing the voice of our Lord. We pray, Lord, that John's ministry would um, be effective in our lives, that we would indeed repent and make way, make room. Because we know that when we do, that you will show up, and you will show up in power, and you will show up in purity, and you will show up in goodness and love and grace. We pray, Lord, that you would do that ministry here in us this morning, and we thank you for it. Amen. I won't say this now every week, but this is now the most sermons I've ever preached in a row. (laughs) <laughs> now, technically, I could just say that every week, but I won't do that. I won't do that. Our text this morning is from Mark. It's, gonna, it's not going to take me long. Verse 10. And when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Any Christian who seeks to know Jesus seeks Uh, we'll eventually need to understand the fact that Jesus, from the time that he was conceived, had a constant companion, the Holy Spirit. To know Jesus is to know the Spirit. To know the Spirit of God is to know the Son of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, in the book of Isaiah, we read this. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, Isaiah 11.2. Isaiah goes on, Behold, my servant whom I, am, uh, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, Isaiah 42.1. And again, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 61.1 The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, so that the Messiah could destroy the forces of darkness and bring justice, healing, and liberty to those enslaved to Satan. My question is, why would Jesus need this spirit? If he's the God-man, if he is God, incarnate, why does he need a spirit that, that consists of all of these things? Isn't he mighty? Isn't he in himself full of the fear of the Lord? Can't he just do whatever he wants? Why is the ministry of God's Messiah tied to the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Why does the Son of God need the Spirit of God? He's God. Most Christians believe that Jesus performed the miracles that he performed and accomplished his mighty feats because he's God. But the scriptures present a more nuanced picture. 
especially because there are others who performed miracles who are clearly not God. Right? Moses is not God. Elijah is not God. Joshua is not God. Peter is not God. And Paul is not God. And yet they do many of the same things that Jesus does. So does that make them gods? Right? If Jesus, the God-man, did all of those things and they did them too, that makes them God-men, doesn't it? Jesus is the author of the truly religious life. He is the new Adam, living as all men in all times ought to live, leading the way for all men everywhere in every age, every age to live the true spiritual life. Jesus has two natures. Now, that is something I'm not going to get totally into today because I don't have that kind of time. But he does, in fact, have two natures. If you, if, if you spend any time studying Christian theology, we get this part. He's not fully God and fully man, because if you're fully one thing, you can't be fully anything else, right? Once you're 100% of something, you're 100%. So the old phrase that they used to use about Jesus is he's truly God and truly man. And we attribute everything that Jesus does, typically, and this is where all of us mostly, for, this is where most of us, for the most part, go wrong. Everything that Jesus goes on to do from this moment here after his baptism, we attribute to his, his nature of divinity. He did it because he's God. And so my question is this. Was Jesus' humanity an illusion? Was his dependence upon God real or just smoke and mirrors? Did Jesus really suffer true humiliation in the incarnation? Or was the humiliation merely that he occasionally got chest colds and had to now eat bread? Right? There's a lot of stuff you could do where it looks like you're pretty weak. Right? If you Say, for instance, he's going around and he says he's hungry. Oh, look at that. He's really weak. But is that all that he experienced? The occasional hunger? The occasional ingrown toenail? Is that really what his humiliation was all about? All those amazing things that Jesus did and said, was he just God dressed in a costume? Was it all mere outward appearance? Was Jesus really a man? This is my question. Was he really, truly a man? Or was he a superman? Was he some sort of weird God-man mutant who was just fighting with one arm tied behind his back? Right? You just tie this right here, stick this in my belt, and I'm stronger with my left arm because I'm a God than everybody is with, all, with both of their arms. Is that really what's going on? Is it? I think that, I'm going to go out on a limb here, most of us think that it is some sort of weird illusion. There is something about it that we don't understand, and I agree with that. And what I'm shocked to find out is what it is I didn't understand. Because I'm with everyone here. That verse where he says, my yoke is light, I think every time I've ever read that verse, I snarkily in my heart I say, well, of course it's light. You're God. Right? <laughs> that, that old question in my philosophy class is, can God make a rock he can't lift? No. Right? He can lift all the rocks. And so when he says it's light, it's light because he's God. And then so what, what does that do to my Christian life? Do I really, what, what, what am I accessing? What, what is my relationship to him? How does this help me at all? When he tells me to go and do a bunch of things that only he could do, he says, imitate me. Live how I have lived, loved how I have loved. And in our hearts, don't we think it's kind of a trap? I can't really do those things because he's God. So we're like, okay, so what does that mean now? We're all going to become gods? Well, we know that's not true. And so what do we do? 
We, we just sort of go through the motions. Our religion becomes an external outward thing because internally we really doubt the very words that God is telling us. He's saying that we can do these things. He's saying to do these things, but we don't really believe him. We don't really believe him. These are all extraordinarily powerful pastoral questions. In, in a lot of ways, these are the pastoral questions. Jesus commands us to follow him and to imitate him. And many of us justify our reluctance or our failure because we think we can't. Jesus said his yoke was light, as I said, and we think that, of course, it was light, your God. He draws near to us and not fully comprehending what that really means, because his humanity is just uh, smoke and mirrors, we hang back and keep at a distance. He said, come and die, and sure, easy enough to say for you, buddy, you're God. Right? It's hard to kill God. It's not hard to kill me. <laughs> right? He says, come and die, and it's like, well, I've actually got something to lose. I don't know about you, Jesus. I, I, I know what you're saying, but it doesn't really appear like you have much to lose. And then what happens? Did he, right? He comes right up out of the ground. Like, see? Look at how easy that was. Look at he split. He goes in the ground, he comes back. And then he, well, yeah, he says, yeah. And that spirit that did that to me will do it to you. And, and we think, okay, all right. And we make Christmas cards about it, and that makes us feel like we're participating in some way. But we're not living that way. Like the same spirit that brought him out of the ground is going to bring us out of the ground. We resist the spirit because we are not being led into the things that would require his assistance to be successful. We resist him by operating by our own reason, our own wisdom, our own strength, our own insight, our own agenda, and so on. If Jesus was a man, if he really was an actual man, truly man, now, an unfallen man, I'll give you that much, we know that's true, but in every other way, if he was just like us, born, bleeds, feeds, and fears, just like you and I, how did he walk on water then? Right? This argument doesn't make sense. Okay, you're saying he really was just a guy like me. And, it doesn't have, and his divinity is not how he did those things. Well, how did he do it? How does he walk on water? How does he quiet a storm? How does he know what people are thinking? He says, love like I love, be holy as I am holy, carry your cross just like me, and hearing it, our hearts go cold numb, and our reason holds us back. Right? And, and then even now, this whole thing is so confusing, what, what do we do? Well, we get up, we do our devotionals. We don't run around on our wives. We go to church every week. We look nice. I mean, everybody looks really nice. And this is, to us, Christianity. This is what it is to be a child of God. We chalk all of his promises up to some sort of weird spiritual mumbo-jumbo. We reason this way. This is how we think in our minds. I got bills. I got kids. I got a job. I got a wife I can hardly love. I got problems, man. Real world here and now problems. I go to church, and I'm, I'm just waiting for that three-step sermon. I, 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 and really, I'm just going to keep going until I hear it. At some point, as many sermons as I've listened to, somebody's going to give me the three steps to just have the good life and be done with it. Because in all of our hearts, what we want is to eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. That's something we could all get behind. That's what we're all yearning for. Why would he command you? 
Why? Why would he command you, with all your failures, with all your frailties, with all your weaknesses, to do things that only God could do? Why would he tell you to do them? Unless he believed you could do them. He believes you can, because he's provided everything you need to do it. Now, he's not going to turn you into little gods. He's going to do something else. How well do you know Jesus? Right? I've asked these questions before. They're fun. Can, can you tell from Scripture what his favorite food is? Hmm. Can you tell from Scripture which his favorite holiday is? Now, I actually believe that you can. And I find that kind of thing fascinating. But that's not what I'm talking about in this case. How did he do all of those things? He really is truly a man. So what, how? How did he do it? And what does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with getting up and getting on 405 tomorrow morning? Right? That seems like enough trouble all, all by itself without all, without all this other spiritual stuff going on. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, really did become an unfallen man who was born and bleeds and feeds and fears just like you and I. He really did empty himself. Otherwise, how do you fit the infinite into the finite? Right? If he's just going to get into some flesh like a suit, he's too big. So he's got to, at some point, set aside some aspects of himself in order to fit even into the flesh. Because you cannot fit an infinite thing into a finite box. Right? If I had all the gold in the world in a two-square-foot box, I couldn't fit it in there, could I? He laid his divinity down so that he would have to take each and every step, every breath, every bite, every night, every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what I need is utter dependence on God. So what I don't want to go down to earth with is my godness. Otherwise, I'll just cheat and I'll just do it myself. And I don't need anybody. I've got myself. And so he actually has to lay it down. So that he can come, because what, what is he? He wants his children to take every breath, every step, every bite, every day, every night. He wants all of it done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's like, okay, I love it. Hold my beer, Dad. I'll be right back. And he goes down and he lays down his divinity. And then in everything in his life, he looks to heaven where his help comes from. And he says, okay, now do what I did. That's what we have to understand. The ministry of the Holy Spirit has everything to do with the ministry of Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with the ministry of fill in your last name. For the Ebies and the Nielsens and the Howards, hey, Hewards, sorry, I'm a little worked up. For Covey, for myself, for my wife, for, for my baby Peter. The example, the thing that God the Father wants is children who live exactly like Jesus lived. Not under their own power, not on their own strength, not on their own understanding, but depending in every way, in every way, on the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at this. Let's look at this. The Holy Spirit was the immediate operator of all the divine acts of the Son of God. Everything he did, he did because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through a man Wherever the Son of God, whatever he wrought in, by or upon his human nature, he did it by the Holy Spirit. This same Spirit that he poured out on you. Jesus walked by the hot girl and didn't stare lustfully at her because he walked by the Holy Spirit. 
not because he was given an advantage that you were not. How often do we justify what we do? Because really, we're at a disadvantage, and he was at an advantage, and we can't do those things. But he didn't look because he walked by the Spirit, not by the flesh. He broke a loaf and fish and fed 5,000 people with it because of the Holy Spirit. He resisted the devil. He endured ridicule and hatred and weakness because the Spirit of God strengthened him in the Lord to do what he could not do in his humiliated state. And that same spirit that he did all of these works, he gives freely to you. When he says, do what I did, you really can do it. When he says, imitate me, you really can imitate him. When he says, come this way, you really can follow me. Believing it is how he does it. And it's as if God commands you to pick up a boulder, but the boulder is huge and you reason that you can't. This, this is exactly what I'm talking about. God says, pick up this boulder. Well, the boulder's the size of a car. Yeah, bend with your knees. <laughs> and what, what do we do? We think, well, that's crazy. So I'm going to go binge watch the Ozarks on Netflix because that seems fun, right? There's nothing hard about that. You just say, I mean, the microwave makes popcorn in two minutes. But this is what he says. He says, go and lead this woman for the rest of your life. And you're like, that is a big boulder, and I cannot lift that boulder. And so we're off in the garage doing God knows what. <laughs> this is, uh, it's, life is full of this. I remember when, I, I mean, I had a friend. He was this grisly old Jesuit guy. And we were sitting in his shop one time drinking homemade beer, reading poetry, and talking about Shakespeare. And he was just the grumpiest, delightful old man. And, and he said one, I was like 20. And he said, yeah, all you kids uh, love Romeo and Juliet. That's all you young romantics, you all love it, because all the dying happens before they have to actually go and die. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think about that. Once, I, you know, pre-marriage counseling, Dean hands me a book on headship, and I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, look at her. I mean, I thought we would just get married and live happily ever after. That, that sounds like a big boulder, and I'm not into lifting boulders. Look at me, right? I do not lift a lot of boulders. And what does he say? He says, been with the knees. Been with the knees. He doesn't want to get into this whole conversation. Mean, he doesn't want you on a molecular level to understand how you're doing things by the Holy Spirit. He says, I will give you the spirit to lift boulders too big for you. We need to comprehend the spirit that is ours in Christ and look at the spirit's ministry in Jesus' life to understand the spirit's ministry in ours. Jesus lifted a lot of boulders. He quieted a lot of storms. He did a lot of amazing things. And he tells us to go and do them, and we don't do them because we don't believe that we can. So what we have to do now is look at his life and see how it worked. Is this really true, what I'm telling you? Or am I just selling you something? Am I just selling you something? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll start at verse 5. Now, I'm going to read this for you, and then we will discuss what it actually means. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Right? Have this mind among yourselves. It's yours. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Who, through, uh, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that every, so at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is in fact Lord. To understand Jesus's humiliation, that's what this is called theologically. They call it his humiliation. We have to start with who he is and who he has always been. Jesus was in the form of God. Now, form here does not mean a mere outward appearance. It's not like a wax statue. It's not like he's just a painting of God. He's God. He existed in the ontological being of God. Okay, That's a big phrase. That means he was God all the way down. All the way up, all the way down. He's God. He, he existed in the form of God. Therefore, having the form of God, he is equivalent to having... It, Therefore, having the form of God is equivalent to saying he has a quality with God. They're, they're one. They're on the equal footing. Jesus is, from eternity past, God. Paul begins with Jesus before the incarnation. Jesus was fully God. We have to understand this to understand how much he was humiliated. As it says in John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 17, 5, And now, Father, Jesus says, glorify me in your, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. To comprehend how far Jesus descends in his humiliation, we have to grasp the height from which he descended. Jesus didn't come into the world to become Lord. He came into the world to reveal himself as the Lord that he has always been. I, I can never teach that enough. He did not come to become something. He came into this world to reveal the sons of God. And who are the sons of God's God? Those who he pours his spirit on and, and who are led by the spirit, doing the things that Jesus himself did. This sets the context for everything that Paul goes on to say here in Philippians. Jesus did not enter the story at Matthew chapter 1. He did not earn his status within the Godhead. His gospel begins in Isaiah. This puts to death many false teachings about Jesus. He existed forever as the second person of the Trinity. He is Lord, and he always has been. He has always been the word through whom all things were made and whom all things hold together. The humiliation that Paul goes on to describe is even starker when we see the crown that Jesus set aside to endure the cross. Verse 6 goes on to say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this is an extraordinarily loaded phrase. Jesus didn't think that his divinity was something to be clutched greedily. He makes a molehill out of his mountain, in a sense. He doesn't think his divinity is an advantage used to avoid his calling as Messiah. It's not like, oh, you, you want me to what now? Oh, you want me to go walk around for 33 years teaching people stuff and then die at the end? Snap, done. Bring it. I mean, just imagine, right? If he actually showed up with his divinity, uh, the story would have been a lot shorter, I think. It's not like they're sitting around the table one night and the Father and the Spirit are looking awkwardly at one another and say, hey, <laughs> hey Jesus, we, we had a plan. We came up with an idea. Um, we're going to send you. 
We're going to send you down there to die. But you got to leave your divinity here. Jesus did not appeal to his rights. Okay, It's not like the union meetings I have to go to where everybody's saying, my rights, my rights. Jesus was like, oh, that's what you want me to do? Here's my divinity. I'll be right back. Jesus didn't cling to his rights as God and petulantly refused to do what needed to be done. He heard what needed to be done. And because he is who he is, he said, "Uh, again, here's my divinity. I'll be right back. Hang on to this for me. I'm going to need it still. And unless he had done that, the whole story just falls apart. You can't kill God unless he lets you kill him. He is the self-sustaining life, right? The, 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 the burning bush is consuming the, right? There's the fire on the bush, but it's not burning the bush up. Why? Because God, the living God, doesn't need fuel to burn. He, he, he is self-sustaining life. So he's not going to get hungry unless he takes that self-sustaining life and sets it down first. To truly draw near to us, Jesus needed to endure what we endure in the flesh, and that wouldn't have been possible if he clutched onto and refused to lay down aspects of his being, his divinity. As John Calvin said, Christ's humility consisted in his abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest humiliation. Our humility consists in reframing from exalting ourselves (laughs) by false estimation. He gave up his right. All that is required of us is that we do not assume to ourselves more than we ought. (laughs) Humility for Jesus is setting aside his divinity to come and and walk amongst us. Humility for us is not acting like gods ourselves. (laughs) It's totally on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Right? As long as I don't act too much like a god in my own home, I'm I'm considered fairly humble. He gives up everything to, to right, right? He, he gives up everything to become a nobody, like we covered last week. There's another interesting echo here, which I think is very important. It's not something to be grasped, is the word. Now, this is an echo from Genesis 3. Who else in the story, stories of the Bible, thought that equality with God was something to be reached out and grabbed? He said it right there, Covey wins. He said, Adam. Grasped could also be translated as robbed. Who tried to rob equality with God? Adam did. Satan told Adam and Eve that God was withholding the fruit from them because he knew that it would make them like God. And they're like, no, I want to be like God, and so I'll take the fruit. Equality with God is something I can, just, I can reach out and take. And Jesus understands true equality with God means that I don't clutch on to it too tight. Jesus is no Adam. Adam wants to be God and is willing to steal it. Jesus is equal to God and doesn't see it as a thing to be grasped onto greedily. Jesus is obedient and humble. He values love and service and submission more than self-glorification, more than his rights. Jesus has the ultimate trump card to the the lowliness and humiliation of being a human, (laughs) being a God, and he sets it aside. Abraham Kuyper wrote that what Christ needed, what he needed in his humiliation, were the gifts of the Holy Spirit to enable his weakened nature in an increasing measure to be his instrument in the working out of his holy design. To obey his Father unto death, Jesus' flesh is the instrument to fulfill his calling as the Son of God. The power to wield it is the Holy Spirit. So he takes on this flesh. 
And no one has gone lower than this. No one. And, and, and so what, in an odd twist of the whole story, he needs the Holy Spirit more than any of us. Because now he's going to go out and do things that only a God can accomplish. And so he is far lower than anything we can imagine. And he is more desperate. He's in a, in, a de- in a deeper, darker wilderness than any of us can possibly imagine. And the only way he's going to find his way through is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, And that's what he wants from us. He wants us to be in this lowly state. He wants us to be in a state where we're not trying desperately how we're to figure out how we're going to do it by ourselves, but where we're in a position where we know without the Spirit of God, we cannot do it. Jesus is the man of the spirit par excellence who emerged from shame into glory. Indeed, the term Christ, which is so often used as Jesus' last name, right? He's not Jesus Christ like Jesus Smith. (laughs) Christ means anointed. As prophet and priest and king, he not only possessed the spirit to enable him to perform his task as the mediator on the cross, but he also needed the spirit to accomplish his ministry, his day-to-day work. And if he did... If he had to have the Spirit of God because God was calling him to lift boulders, he couldn't lift in his humiliation, how much more do you need the Holy Spirit? Each of you has a ministry. Each of you has a ministry. And you're not going to fulfill what God called you to do if you're relying upon yourself. That is the point of all of this. Seeing that Jesus needed the same spirit that is freely offered to you puts you on a foothold behind him, truly following him, actually imitating him in word and deed. His need and your need are the same. And by putting his faith in the spirit and trusting and depending upon the Holy Spirit, Jesus fulfilled his calling. It's the only way that any man ever can. And so let's look. Let's get now right into the specifics. Because what does that mean that he depended upon the Holy Spirit? And what I find fascinating is Mark has him baptized by the Holy Spirit and then doesn't mention the Spirit much after that. And I think we miss the point of that. Mark is saying, without this moment here in the first chapter, none of the rest of the story even matters. None of it even makes sense. It's not going to happen. The assumption all along is that this is the man anointed with the Holy Spirit, the beloved Son of God, the one sent out by the Spirit to accomplish the things of God by the Spirit. And, and so the entire rest of Mark makes sense if, if you understand he's the man with the Spirit. But let's look at some specifics, because luckily there's other Gospels that help us make this point and reveal to us how badly and in how many situations not only Jesus depended upon the Holy Spirit, but how how many we depend upon the Holy Spirit. Having been baptized and anointed by the Spirit, Jesus came into the immediate custody of the Spirit. In all the major events of his life, the Holy Spirit took a prominent role in Christ. He was Christ's constant companion. In Christ, there is a compound of all the graces of the Spirit. He received the Spirit out of measure. There was in him as much as possibly could be in a creature and more than all other creatures whatsoever. John 3.34 tells us this. He received, right, there's there's no sin standing in the way. John says, get everything out of the way, here comes God. Jesus says, okay, done, (laughs) right, in an instant, in an instant. It's like that, there's a... 
this old TV show, and there's, there's a character who's not very bright, and they say, clear your mind. He goes, and he's, before the person's even done saying, clear your mind, he goes, done. Right? Because there's nothing there. <laughs> so John says, make way, and Jesus is like, done. And so what do you think he's going to get? Pure, 100%, all the way, as, as pure and powerful as you can get it, 100 proof grace. Here is the spirit. Here is all of it, more than any other human being has ever had. Now let's see what you do with it. Go out and make it happen, son. And when we look on Jesus, we see, we see what? The fruit of the spirit without bounds. More joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more gentleness than anyone. Because, bam, he's got the spirit, and he's got it fully, and there's nothing in the way. Now, what Mark doesn't cover is, is actually back in, in the beginning of the cha- chapter, beginning chapters of Luke, the whole first three chapters is really about the Holy Spirit. Everything that happens leading up to Jesus is done by the Spirit. And Luke is making the same point that Mark is, but he's making it differently. Nothing happens in Jesus' life apart from the Spirit. Luke 1.35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So before Jesus shows up to do his work, the Spirit is already doing his work. Now, I'm not going to get into that. Molecular level. She's overpowered by the Spirit. Right? It doesn't, it's not conceived by the Holy Spirit, but conceived by the Holy Spirit, if you know what I'm saying. He takes what's there and he remakes it into Jesus. And then back in Mark, right? So at his birth, there is the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, Mark chapter 1, verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So here he is again. It's his big moment. It's his coming out party. And what, what is he given from heaven? The Spirit. And then immediately in verse 12 of Mark chapter 1, we read this. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So we see that he didn't just get the Spirit I mean, like, he didn't just receive this thing and stick it in his pocket and be like, okay, cool. No, immediately, immediately, it goes to work on him. The Spirit is leading him from the very beginning. Jesus' temptation was no mere appearance. He was brutally assaulted in every possible way, so much so that angels came at the end and ministered to him. If Jesus had simply relied upon his own divine nature to sustain himself, why would he need angels to minister to him? Why does he have to go into the wilderness by the power of the Holy Spirit if he's, if he's just going to go out there and let Satan have it? And afterwards, why does he need help unless he's, he is really just a man like you and I? Peter preached in Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. God was with him. How do we know? Because look at what he's doing. He's doing the things that... that God said the Messiah would do. He's healing and binding up and liberating. And and why is he able to do these things? Because he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said. He went about doing his ministry because he had the Holy Spirit. What I find fascinating, if you go to Mark chapter 3, is that if you go to 3 verses 22 through 30, we're running out of time, so I'm not going to read them. But here's this passage where Jesus is doing all these miracles. And the Pharisees come and they say, look at that, he's doing it by the devil. They're attributing it to the spirit of the devil. And Jesus attributes it to who? He says, do not blaspheme the Holy Spirit by calling the things that I'm doing of the devil. 
So Jesus is, right, he's defending the Holy Spirit. They're attacking his works, and he's defending the Holy Spirit. What does that imply? Where is his works coming from? He's, not, he's like, how dare you say that about me? I'm of the devil. Where do you get off? No, he, he's immediately offended on behalf of the Holy Spirit because it's, the Holy Spirit is his constant companion by which he's going all over the place, doing all of these things that God told him to do. Every time he lifts a boulder, he knows it's not himself. And when he can lift the boulder, people are asking him stupid questions about it. And what he doesn't want is them insulting the Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Holy Spirit have to do with this? I saw you lift the boulder, man. Yeah, I'm not doing it by myself. So in his everyday life, this is how he's living. It's not just the big moments. It's his everyday ministry. Because the Spirit went with Jesus everywhere, even to the cross, there was a little doubt that Christ called out, i.e. prayed, to his Father by the enabling of the help of the Spirit. He prayed in the Spirit just like you and I do. Now listen to this. Romans eight twenty six through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches hearts, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Groanings too deep for words. Mark fifteen thirty four through 35. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. Now, there's a lot of interesting explanations as to why they're confused about what he said. I think they're confused by what he said because he, he's in so much agony, he's just groaning. He's on there praying to God by the power of the Holy Spirit because he doesn't have any strength left to do it himself. And they're like, what, what is he saying? Is he calling Elijah? Huh? It says a similar thing in Mark 2, 8. It says he, would, he, he, he groaned inwardly in his spirit. He sees the unbelief of the people around him, and he groans inwardly, which is exactly what happens to Peter. Peter is out, and he sees the idols of the land, and, and it says the exact same phrase. He groans inwardly in his spirit. Now, how many of you guys have made a similar bad argument, like I have, about the apostles? Well, you know, they did that stuff because they're apostles, right? They're not like common people like us. I mean, that stuff about Peter being a tent maker, I don't think you really need to do that. I think he was just making a point. I mean, can you imagine Peter sitting, or Paul, I'm sorry, sitting around like accidentally stabbing himself with a needle, like just a normal person? No, I, just, I imagine him like never having to eat thundering the word, then throwing rocks at him, and they just bounce off. Right? That's what I imagine, because he's Paul. But I think we would be shocked if we saw the real Paul. They're like, man, you really uh, do uh, take the drugs there, Jesus. Everything that happens to him, everything about him is not him, right? And, and so what we think, we hear these stories, and we read what Jesus says, and we just don't believe it. We don't believe they were just small, frail, normal people like you and I. Now, I'm going way over here, so I'm going to wrap this up. Another thing that I find fascinating is that they say about Jesus that he grew in stature and wisdom. Now, Isaiah said that the Messiah would, would dwell on the word of God every day. Now, again, how many of us have thought, you know, Jesus just came pre-programmed, right? Right? Like the Matrix. He sits down in the chair, 
They load that thing in his head and they just, have you guys seen The Matrix? How do I fly a helicopter? Their eyes flick through and then bam, they got it. And so I always thought he had that kind of access to the, to the scriptures. Right? Uh, Father, um, what, did, what did that say in Isaiah? And then it just gets the info. It turns out, though, he had to sit down at a desk or a comfy chair or, uh, you know, in some sand somewhere in the desert and actually get out a scroll and read it. And then he had to memorize it. Now, that sounds like what I have to do. And, and he did it because it says in Isaiah the Holy Spirit was with him. He did not have an advantage. He had the Spirit. But I've saved the biggest thing for last. Do you know why we really don't believe this? Because immediately he's driven to the wilderness. I don't want to follow a spirit if that's what he's going to do. All of this stuff, when it really comes down to it, is we see that. We see what this really means. And we turn away from it. We think the fruit of the spirit is like those farms where you go and you pay money and you go around picking blueberries. You're like, I love fruit, right? I'm a farmer, look at me. And we get a bushel and we're like, man, I love fruit. And you just pay 20 bucks and you go and you pick as much as you want. We think the fruit of the spirit should be like that, right? I, wait, I just sit around, he does all the work, and I get some fruit salad at the end. If you want to follow the spirit, which you have, right? I'm not... You have the spirit. That is my fundamental assumption all along. But you're ignoring him. You're not following him where where it leads. It leads into the wilderness where Jesus is defeating his enemies. Now, that looks like, I mean, but a wilderness, I have to go out where I'm not comfortable. I have to give up things. This is, this whole time, going back to the very first sermon in this series, was what? I said, go out, we all need a return to the wilderness. Now it turns out the way that it's, it's done is by following the Spirit. And we don't want to do that because we don't want a wilderness. We want comfort. We want safety. We want security. We want respectability. We want middle-class comfort. And so all of this other stuff is true. It's hard to understand what the two natures of Christ is all about. It's hard to understand what it means that he was really incarnate. But when it comes down to it, we don't want anything to do with this because where the Spirit leads is a wilderness. Where you have nothing. Where John says, get rid of everything. Come to the wilderness where all you have is God and God will show up. And it's not that we necessarily don't believe he won't show up. It's that we don't want anything to do with a wilderness. Are you tired? Are you sick of trying? Are you sick of, of, of reading these stories and just not seeing what it has to do with you? Are you sick of hearing about Jesus talking about the Father, talking about the church, talking about this and talking about and, and you just you're tired of hearing about it. It's not your life. It doesn't have anything to do with your life. The problem is is you need to leave Judea, you need to leave Jerusalem and you need to come out into the woods. Follow the spirit where he leads. Every time Right? Every time you get on that train, you see the boulders and you get off the train. 
Follow him. If you want Christ, if you want more of him, if you want to rest in him, if you want that joy, if you want that yoke that actually feels light, it's not a trick. It's a person. His name is the Spirit of God. And if you follow him, what you will find is a wilderness. And what you will find there is the oasis of Jesus. And you will come to him and you'll be like, you know what? This is way better than all of that crap I left behind. And then what you'll be, you know what? Why aren't more people on this train? This is the train. This is the train to the good life. Believing it is how he does it. The problem isn't the train. The problem isn't God. The problem is not the spirit. The problem is not the word of God. The problem is we don't believe it and we resist it because we're holding on to the things of this world. Right? That passage that was read for us this morning, we love that passage about the fruit of the Spirit, but it goes on to say that people who have these things, people who have the Spirit, are, con- are turning away from the world. That part never ends up on the poster. If you want the life of Christ, if you want him, his constant companion was the Holy Spirit. And he is going to lead you places that you do not want to go. You're going to see the path and you say, no, thank you. But I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it's the only way. There is one way, one life, one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And the only way to get there is following the Holy Spirit wherever he leads. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. I thank you, Father, that you are finishing what you began in us. As it says in Philippians, we know that your son came into this world. We pray, Father, that we would believe it and not just know it, that we would live it and not just know it, that we would follow the Spirit wherever he leads us, that you would fill our mouths with cries of mercy, that you would fill our heart with joy, that you would fill our heart with a desire to lay down everything in this world that holds us back. We pray, Lord, that by the Spirit you would take the cotton out of our ears and the scales from our eyes, that you would give us a devotion and a thirst and a hunger for your Son, and that we would get rid of everything in our lives that holds us back. Father, your spirit is with us, and I pray that we would all this week hear him and see him moving, driving us forward, pointing us to Jesus. And that I pray, Lord, that for all of us, that we would follow. Amen.